Welcome to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side of history, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I am not a historian, and I'm joined here with my best friend Kevin. Today we have one of the most fascinating stories to come out of American history. Um, but to dive into, I guess, a little bit of a meta-analysis at the very beginning, researching something as broad or really researching anything in history gets you stuck into a position where you have to figure out just how much background information to give before speaking about something. Not everybody knows all the nitty-gritty events and little bits and pieces of history. And so the difficulty I had in recording this episode was to try to figure out where to start. This episode is going to be about John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, Virginia. That is a definite footnote in a historical textbook. It may get a few sentences. Um, Some historians find it more interesting than others, and so you'll see a, a bit of an elaboration on this very interesting man. John Brown is incredibly fascinating, and any book you read on about him, any book you read about Harper's Ferry, ends up spending at least half the book focusing on just this one man. I'm not going to spend this entire podcast talking about John Brown. However, we do need to know a little bit about him and try to uncover some of his reasoning and his feelings and his beliefs as we go through the story. So we'll occasionally stop and take a little look at who this man is. But... In true footnotes fashion, we're going to focus very specifically on the narrative of a couple of days. And unfortunately for the people involved, Harper's Ferry did last a couple of days. And again, as we began the podcast with our first episodes on William Walker, we are going to dive in or descend into the 1850s in the United States. And just the briefest of backgrounds about the 1850s, this is the decade that saw the steady split between North and South in the United States. This is where you have guerrilla warfare occurring in the state of Kansas. Probably the last exciting thing to happen in the state of Kansas. Between pro-slave and anti-slave forces, you see a divide between the more industrialized Northern society, which had a little bit more of independence and egalitarianism, with the agrarian South that was steadily embracing slavery, more aristocratic notions and traditional notions of society, and basically get two very separate cultures within one country. The 1850s is usually just looked at as the pre-Civil War, what is causing the Civil War. And the events at Harper's Ferry, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, to give you an idea of what we're going to talk about, is truly the apex of the 1850s, not just because it happens at the very end of 1859, but it's been called a dress rehearsal of the Civil War because people involved would play major, major roles in that war. Robert E. Lee shows up in the story. A famous cavalry general in the Confederacy, Jeb Stewart, J.E.B. Stewart, comes up in the story. And even John Wilkes Booth really can appear at the end of the story. Oh, We're man. not going to go to that length, but he does show up in the end of this. I don't think I knew what the context for uh, for this event is. We've talked about it a little bit in kind of some show prep stuff, but I don't know that I ever really took the time to kind of appreciate where it sits in the order of American history and everything. I didn't realize that this was something leading into 
the Civil War like that. And the, the other difficult thing with history is I, I have to figure out just how many spoilers to give, right? It, we all know what happens. You can look it up very easily as to what happens to Harper's Ferry, at Harper's Ferry, what happens to John Brown, to, to give you spoilers, he fails and he dies. But his death and the lead up to it is incredibly important. And just a year after his death, the first Southern states secede because partially due to what he did and how he basically drove a rift between the North and South. Mm. So that's where we are in, in time and in context. At the beginning of our story, though, I want to start uh, in the early summer of 1859. And we're at a place called Kennedy, Kennedy Farm, like John F. Kennedy, that same name. Kennedy Farm, which is a nice, large farmhouse um, in Maryland. It's just on the other side of the Potomac River, which divides Maryland and Virginia. And an old man who went by the name of John Smith, or sometimes it was called Captain Smith, had shown up and bought this farm with his daughter, his daughter-in-law, and a few of his adult sons. And a few other acquaintances would kind of come back and forth. The people in the area questioned him pretty quickly as to why he wanted this farm. It wasn't a very good spot to start a farm with that many people. Just They couldn't grow anything. They couldn't make any money. But John Brown said, that's why I'm there. But if you notice, he went by John Smith. Because at this point, John Brown is a wanted fugitive in the country. He's been a wanted fugitive for years, since the mid-1850s. Right around the same time William Walker is conquering Nicaragua for slavery, John Brown is fighting for the anti-slavery side in Kansas, winning battle after battle as a guerrilla fighter outnumbered usually four to one. There's also some less than pleasant events. John Brown is famous for massacring people in what's called the Powhatami Massacre, where he and his followers grabbed pro-slavery-leaning people who were pretty much innocent and killed them with broadswords and shot them. Yes, broadswords. 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 Okay. That's, that seems like a very intense biblical wrath kind of thing, especially for, for people who you describe as pro-slavery-leaning. Broadsword death seems like a pretty severe move. Well, I'm going to quote the writer Tony Horowitz, who is my main source for this book, and I would highly recommend his book. It'll be up on our page. It'll be in the show notes. You can click on it and order it if you'd like. Tony Horowitz wrote a great book called Midnight Rising, and in the very beginning, he calls John Brown an Old Testament Christian. I think that describes him perfectly. I don't think I need to go much deeper into his personality. He's a fire and brimstone, stern-faced... Fire and broadsword. Fire and broadsword, <laughs> stern-faced man... He has 19 children from two oh women. Oh my gosh. Eight or nine of them die before age five. He is a massive failure in his life. He is repeatedly in debt. He's repeatedly swarmed by lawsuits and being chased by his business partners. He, at one point, tries to sell wool in England. They got plenty of sheep there. Seems like they might. So he basically sees this Kansas battle as a way for him to participate in a positive way in the one thing that he has shown in his life to care more about than anything else. John Brown hates slavery. He sees the teachings of the Bible obvious affront to the institution of slavery. His religion and his religious beliefs really pushed him in that way. He's also a strong Calvinist. This is a man who believes that all of humanity is wicked and only the righteous do what is right. Mm -hmm. So seeing slavery in existence doesn't phase him at all. In fact, 
he's actually fairly kind, unless he's murdering them, to people who own slaves. And that'll come up. But he hates slavery, apparently. And this comes from uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's biography of John Brown. Brown saw a slave boy, like a young, young boy, get beaten with a shovel by his owner when Brown was like 12 years old. And from there on, for the rest of his life, he, he basically devoted himself to fighting slavery and not just fighting and removing slavery, but he, in terms of his era, was probably the most aggressively egalitarian in terms of race relations that a person could be. He got kicked out of his church, and this is the last church he ever went to, by bringing a black family up to his pew and having them sit with him. That got him kicked out of the church. And these, this was an abolitionist church. Jeez. So he is a step above. Mm-hmm. He was friends with Frederick Douglass. He had correspondence with Harriet Tubman. John Brown had famous abolitionist friends, whether white or black. He helped um, pay for Oberlin College, the first black university in the United States. But at this point, when he's buying Kennedy Farm under this alias Captain Smith or John Smith with his family members, he's famous for being a aggressive abolitionist. He had been funding some specific plan that he had had the plan had shifted back and forth a little bit um he was actively recruiting not only his family members but his family members in-laws he was actively recruiting his old kansas veteran buddies who had fought with them for the uh, anti-slavery side in the abolitionist side in kansas and he had been going from town to town in new england and in new england and the midwest and speaking to rich yuppie abolitionist getting their funding so that he could do something what exactly he was going to do no one was quite sure in fact it's pretty obvious that brown wasn't quite sure right his whole life seems like it's a series of failure to launch moments so i could see it sounds like he's the kind of guy who has a lot of passion not a lot of direction or a lot of direction not a lot of specifics he had a lot of passion he had a lot of direction the specifics were not his thing He's like the underpants gnomes. <laughs> that is a deep cut for people who watched a specific era of South Park, which means if you are our age, you get that joke. <laughs> also a very weird reference to make with how heavy I feel like this episode is going to become. <laughs> There's a lot of death. <laughs> so I get to do something really cool, though, um, at the beginning here. We, we, we've get, gotten a decent idea of who John Brown is. Um, I'm actually going to switch away from Brown and actually focus on uh, his daughter, and his daughter-in-law, so his daughter Annie and his daughter-in-law Martha, because it's from them that we get a good view of the planning to the raid on Harper's Ferry. Um, These are two very young women. Annie is 16, um, so still a girl, um, and Martha, I think, is 18. At that point, they're considered, in in 1859, they're pretty much considered women at this point. And Martha's actually married to John Brown's, one of his younger sons, uh, named Oliver. And the job that Annie and Martha have is to basically make it so the Kennedy farm doesn't look like there's anything going on here. Brown had been planning for some sort of raid for a long time, but his broader plan was to incite a slave insurrection, was to make a strike and have the slaves in the area be armed by him, and then rise up and achieve their freedom basically by sparking in a, a giant conflagration. This had happened a few times in history. You know, the country of Haiti exists because a you know, very different but similar thing like that had happened. 
but they're in a pro-slave state. Maryland was a slave state, and the people who live in the area had an idea that something was being planned, and they were fearful that just people would do these kinds of things because of the antagonism between pro- and anti-slavery forces in the United States. So the entire countryside around the Kennedy Farm is watching and going, what's going on at this place? Who are all these people? So Annie and Martha have the job of making it look like it's a normal family. Brown, Captain Smith, he could be there, and his adult sons could be there. He had three sons with him. Um, But there's actually about 20 men living in this farmhouse, and it only has one bedroom, a, a common room with a kitchen, and then an attic, a big, like, kind of furnished attic. And that's where all the men are hidden. Now, these men came from a variety of places, But the core group is his family. So he's got his daughter and daughter-in-law. He's got three of his adult sons. He has many more sons. Two of them had died in Kansas during his fighting. And two of them had basically received such bad PTSD from the experience because they were more or less being terrorized the entire time that they didn't join him. So it's one of his older sons who had already been maimed in Kansas. He didn't have use of one of his hands because I think it had been shot off. And his two younger sons who are uh, around 20 years old. So that's his first group. So it sounds like the core of his fighting militia, his standing militia there is his family or his sons. He basically like raised them to join him in his fight. We'll get into that. It's more, it's, it's very different than you might expect. They were there fully on their own volition. Okay. Okay. And there was probably a little bit of that. Like I want to be there because it's my, what my father wants, but they didn't really have a need to because a bunch of his sons said no. And it's not like he hated them they right. just said no i'm speaking more to kind of his intention here it seems like it seems like he wouldn't force them to fight he seems like a man of like you stand for your principles kind of thing so that's a that, really good way to if think that's of not him, their yeah. principles then he will be disappointed in you but he won't he won't take the world war ii russian approach which is hold the gun and stand in front of me or else i'll shoot you as you run away there's multiple speaking of spoilers <laughs> there's multiple times where annie and martha have to receive visitors and to desperately keep the visitors unaware of what's going on. Why are there giant boxes inside the house? Those boxes were filled with guns. Why is there no furniture? Why is it so hot in this house? So much body heat. The men who are there, who I've not described yet, they couldn't go outside except at night during um, full moons when they can see. There's one at time when the guys go out during a thunderstorm because no one can hear them. There was one instance where uh, an older woman comes to bother them. And even though she found the two young ladies to be very pleasant, she sees a black man. And And this is why they're staying hidden? And that's not okay at that time in history. And they basically have to bribe her with, like, you know, butter and flour and things like that. But she comes back, like, every other day and extorts them for the entire summer they're there. You gotta butter her up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ouch one bad pun per uh trilogy yes yes so who are these men well we've already gone over the fact that john brown had his family um so martha uh had brought her two brothers as well so there was john brown's two son-in-laws and these are 
young guys. These are all about college age. They're like, you know, they don't need to shave. They're that young. They have no experience fighting. None of Brown's sons, except for his old, one of his older sons named Owen. He'll come up again, who's the one with the injured hand. Only Owen of all of his family has fought before. And um, I'd proven to not be the best fighter either. He lost a hand, right? Yeah. Um, he didn't, I don't think he really liked to fight. Uh, so there's three groups, the family group. The other group's veterans. When John Brown had been f- setting up the plan to go and raid Harper's Ferry, he basically sent out a letter to everybody who he had any experience with, any of the old guys who he'd fought in Kansas. He also did a raid in Missouri and freed a bunch of slaves there. And anyone who had participated with him, he asked for them to come. And he got about 10. 10 guys. So these are rough, rough men. Um, to give you an example of who some of these guys are, um, one of them, and this guy will come up later, his name was Aaron Stevens. And Aaron Stevens was a Mexican-American War veteran, and he had been kicked out of the military because he got drunk and refused orders from his superior officer, threatened to kill him, and then started to actively try to kill him. So he was court-martialed and kicked out of the military. It's amazing that that just gets you kicked out. Well, he, he actually uh, escaped the prison. That makes more sense. That seems more in line with the, uh, the series of events leading up to it. But he had good military experience, so he actually became John Brown's uh, like commander-in-chief of their military. Not only, not only did he serve, he attempted to kill an officer. That's yes. military experience right there. And then he spent two years in Kansas or so with John Brown fighting people. He, he, was, he went by the pseudonym Colonel Whipple. Because the 1850s were weird, <laughs> just for the sake of still maintaining that military air. He was apparently this massive, broad, intimidating man. So yeah, Aaron Stevens, uh, and a really interesting guy. One of his old fighters was a man named John Cook. And Cook's going to come up a couple more times because Cook was basically a spy. John Cook had fought with Brown in Kansas, and Cook had been living in Virginia near Harper's Ferry, for two years or so, a year and a half, he had even married a young woman there. He had fully infiltrated that society, even though he was a foreign northerner down in Virginia. And people knew that he was anti-slavery. People knew that he was there out of nowhere, but they really liked him because John Cook was charming. He was handsome. He was in his early 20s. He, had all, he was good with guns. He had all this really interesting experience in his life, and he had charmed the entire population. But what he was actually doing there was he was reconnaissance. He was figuring out the basic mentality of the people. Would they fight back if someone tried to raid a town? So John Brown's strategy here isn't just roll in and burn the place down. There's... There's insurgency happening. I was thinking about that aspect as I was saying the last part about Cook. The reason Harper's Ferry is important is because there is a United States armory in the town. That is why the town really exists, is Harper's Ferry is where the United States Army makes all its guns. So there's a massive stockpile of weapons, which Brown hoped to use to arm the slaves. Now, Brown, because he was a very interesting figure, also brings a ton of rifles on his own, as well as like a thousand pikes. We're talking like 14-foot-long spears. 
and he was actually trying to arm the slaves with pikes and some with guns. Creating some pikemen. That's awesome. There's some symbolism going on in his mind. I'm not quite sure what. It's very Old Testament. Very Old Testament. But Cook had figured out who all the major slave owners were, how many slaves were there. He was trying to get a basic understanding of what the population would do once the raid happened, Brown's force had had the, um, the weapons and could then go and arm the slaves. He just was trying to figure out, would the people fight back aggressively? And his opinion was no. Remember that. Okay. He's that a, was not a good idea. He's of a mind that, what's his, what's his thinking there? Is, is he of a mind that once this raid goes down, they secure weapons and they arm the slaves, that the, the inner good of mankind is going to want to see the slaves freed? Is it going to be that they don't, that he believes they're not passionate enough about the institution of slavery to fight to protect it? It's definitely more the latter. Okay. Um, a, a view of a lot of abolitionists was that many people in the South were not benefiting from the slave economy. The vast majority of Southerners did not own slaves at all. And most people that did own slaves, they owned a lot. It, it, it's like, I think it's like 90-something percent of people didn't own, did not own a slave. And so because of that, these were people who were poor. And there was a huge gap between the poor and the rich. And the idea was that these people would not actively go out of their way. To fight for something that they've never had or have no chance of owning. Yeah. Okay. That is the ultimate undersight here that helped to cause the Civil War. Is pe- the, a lot of northerners didn't realize how much the south believed in its uniqueness in in every way and that even the poorest southern person would fight for the rights of their rich overlords right because it was a cultural ethos for them this traditional society now the last group of soldiers and there's only about five or six of these guys or i would call the hopefuls and all of the hopefuls are african-american they're all black they are here for a huge variety of reasons. The last guy they were able to recruit, one of the last guys, was a Canadian printer from the United States originally named Osborne Anderson. And Anderson just simply hated slavery and wanted to do some active thing to prevent it. He was one of the first, part of the first generation of black men to be educated in the United States at this place called Oberlin College. It still exists. Osborne Anderson was actually recruited by John Brown's oldest son, John Brown Jr., and had made his way from Canada all the way down to uh, Maryland because he found John Brown's goal to be so positive, such a good in society. Anderson's really important because he writes a memoir of the event. He's one of the very few people that we actually have a like written account from his perspective. Primary source kind of thing. He's a, he is like the ultimate primary source. And the great Fantastic. thing about it, you can just look it up online. It's for free. Oh, cool. So I, I mean, I have it sitting open on my Chromebook right now. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Go read it yourself. It's short, too. Um, and it's totally 1850s. But he was a printer. He was a pretty good writer. Um, there's also a guy there named Dangerfield Newby. Oh, man. That's that a is, cool name. That is my favorite name. That's the new name of this podcast is Dangerfield Newby. <laughs> He's got a fun name. He did not have a fun life. He was an uh, escape. Not, I don't think he was an escape slave. I believe he bought his freedom. But his... Uh, wife and family was still enslaved in Virginia and he had been trying to raise enough money while a free man in the north to purchase his family that that's just such a bizarre sentence to even say but the owner refused to sell them after originally saying he would so what newbie was hoping to do was basically go free them he's going to participate in the insurrection but hopefully it spreads enough so he can go get his family back his wife writes these letters that are just painful to read 
about how their daughter is finally starting to walk around by crawling along the furniture. And you realize that this is a man trying to get his family back. And that's why he's there. And this does not seem to end well for all these people. A few of the other hopefuls are for more just cause reasons. They want to be there for the cause, including one of Frederick Douglass's very close friends named Shields Green, who was an escaped slave and had hoped to have an effect on something he had personally felt was an evil in his life. He escaped slavery, after all. Total, there's 21 men, and these two women have to keep these 21 men under wraps. Like I said, they couldn't go outside unless it was nighttime or there was a thunderstorm. They spent their entire time upstairs training, just practicing drill, doing domestic chores. And to be perfectly honest, for Annie and Martha, this was a wonderful summer. Martha was a newlywed, and she shared a room with Annie and her husband, Olive. And in Annie's diary, she writes, they kept making this constant repetitive rustling sound in the bed. <laughs> and when she asked what they were doing, they were just straightening up the bed, straightening up the bed. Right. Well, by the time the raid happens, Martha's three months pregnant. Of course she is. This is like... The, her husband. This is like the darkest version of Three's Company. Annie even has a a few trysts with some of the men. I mean, think about it. She's surrounded by these handsome, strapping, brave men. Who are constantly in a training montage. Pretty much. It's like the longest, most boring, and it's summer in Virginia, or Maryland. Very sweaty. (laughs) Very sweaty. So this is a fun experience for them. But what ends up happening is someone tips off that this farm is going to do something. The people there... Even though they've been going through a lot of effort to add normalcy, like they, they purchased a bunch of farm animals, and John Brown kind of acted as a surgeon to some of the people in the area, there's way too many strange men coming in and out. Because they were able to kind of allow one of the guys to be visible. He's visiting for a week, right? right. And then he would disappear again. Or like hired help and yeah. various like covers and Mr. X. But over a couple of months, there's like 20 strange men. It, it stops working, and so Brown sends the two ladies home, and they get to the business of what they're going to do. And that, this is when the actual story starts. They've planned, and they've planned and planned. So what was their basic plan? Well, it looked like this. First of all, Brown rewrote the Constitution. The American Constitution? The American Constitution. He okay. basically stole the American Constitution and added his bits to it. They wanted to form— Is he Nicolas Cage? A little bit. <laughs> they wanted to form their own— like government. John Brown is the commander in chief. In his constitution, he's basically king. He's emperor, Emperor Brown. Um, but he gives all the different people involved, and maybe there's 21 guys. Each one of them has a, a rank, a title. Uh, so John Brown's second in command is a guy by the name of uh, John Kagey. Uh, Kagey is a major leader, even though there's not much known about him. Aaron Stevens, spoken about already, is the guy who's in charge of the military. And he's also responsible for going from plantation to plantation once they arrive at Harper's Ferry and freeing slaves that John Cook had already basically picked out. Yeah. this is That's after they've secured the armory and everything. This is where he goes around freeing and arming. Yeah. And everyone's got to, I mean, they have positions in kind of the same way that William Walker did it. Like, everyone seems to be a captain or a lieutenant. There's, like, no privates. Okay. Um, but So they have their positions, and they all know exactly what they're going to do. John Brown sets out um, a set of orders. The men are going to each have a specific task. One of the things they do first before they even do the raid is a couple of the guys go into town and cut the telegraph wires. Mm. 
Okay. At this point, the telephone doesn't exist. So the yeah. telegraph is the best way to get communication out. They don't want the raid to be known until they're able to achieve their basic goals. They want to take not just the armory, but also a few of the other buildings around the area. Um, and like I said, guys have specific tasks. Some are going to get the bridge. Some are going to get an arsenal. Some are going to get a rifle work. Some are going to get the armory. And others are going to get the other bridge out of town. So we have a couple of different things. So they all gather around the campfire on the evening of Sunday. They all gather <laughs> around a campfire on a Sunday evening as the sun sets. Brown reads the Bible, gives them a sermon, and they all get up and go leave to go on this insurrection. Probably something from Leviticus. Knowing Brown, probably. <laughs> something that makes no sense to everybody else, mm-hmm. but it made sense to him. It's important to note, though, that Brown was not a cult leader. The men fighting for him, in many cases, were actively not religious. Aaron Stevens was an agnostic. Brown knew this. But they they had fought together. They've, Stevens was devoted to Brown. He was devoted to Brown's cause. But it was purely on his own accord. Brown's sons went, as we've kind of already talked about, because they wanted to. They were able to recruit their in-laws because those men thought that they were there to do what was right. And these are young men. Dangerfield Newby's the oldest one. Most of these men are like 22. And They're there is, for some adventure. This is a thing that we've talked about a lot in, in episodes like the, uh, the Walker trilogy. Um, this idea that so many, so many men that, that volunteer for these causes, they just, they're in this, this weird place of there's nothing left to explore. And they need something to give meaning to, or to give them meaning. And they need something that motivates them and something that, honestly, for a lot of them, I'm sure, just to die for. Just do. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've, seen, this in, we've seen this in other stories in this similar time of history. I think we also forget just how little there was going for a lot of people back then. Yeah. Your goal is to get a, for many people, is to get a farm, have enough land to live comfortably in a nice house that was not easy to do so unless you're born in a situation where that's pretty much handed to you a young man has to go get glory or become a poor factory worker a poor farm laborer and that's not something that's appealing to 20 year old men so brown has the men march in twos and they have a big wagon and brown himself is standing in the wagon and they pull brown as they march in twos a certain spacing apart through the night toward Harper's Ferry. In that wagon is a bunch of crates of pikes and of guns. Each man has a rifle and two pistols in their belt and about 40 rounds of ammunition. These guys are armed to the teeth. Do they have bandoliers? Just because the mental image I think is appropriate. That's I'm really all say I wanted. Yes. Perfect. We needed some bandoliers for this one. I Osborne Anderson is the one who says they had 40 bullets each. And he doesn't say where he had them, but I don't see them carrying around little, like, you know, pouches or something. Like the, like the, like the little metal tins that you pick up in Call of Duty. Exactly. I, they had bandoliers, or they did have, like, pouches, like a yeah. backpack. They have Sharps carbine rifles. So as the man walked to Harper's Ferry, who knows what's going through their head. But Harper's Ferry is a town. It is a small town. I don't know why it's called Harper's Ferry. That's one of those little trivial facts that I, I just personally don't care about. But it's right at the boundary between two large rivers. It has the uh, U.S. armory grounds there and a lot of infrastructure around 
that armory. That's pretty much why everyone lives there. There's also a canal and two bridges with railroad tracks on them. So it's a really good, like, travel hub. Yeah, it's good for distribution, which is why it's there. Yeah. To give you an idea of the geography, because we do need to know the a basic picture of the geography, it's like you take the letter Y and turn it on its side. So the prongs are pointing left. And those are the two rivers. If you want to see uh, an actual image of what the city looks like and everything, uh, it's in the show notes. Okay. But to give a little basic picture, it's basically where two rivers connect. The Potomac River, the one that flows through Washington, D.C., um, and it also forms the boundary of Maryland and Virginia. By the way, Harper's Ferry is now in West Virginia, but then it was just Virginia. The Potomac River is the northern boundary of the town. And then the Shenandoah River, coming up from, from the south, from Virginia, connects with the Potomac. And Harper's Ferry is right where the two rivers connect. And there's an area there where if the rivers flood, it'll flood the lower area of the town. And that's where the armory is. Most of the town is up on these hilly cliffs, kind of toward the west. Across the river, on either side of the river from Harper's Ferry, are steep cliffs with two bridges that kind of skirt along them and point northeast and southeast. If you go southeast, you get to Virginia. If you go northeast, you go to Maryland. And then eventually you're really close to Pennsylvania. It's that long, thin part of Maryland okay. at the very west end. This is a place that's well-connected. There's two railroads that come through. There's a lot of people live here, and it's also not either Virginian or Maryland territory. It's the United States territory. And so some of the relations in this, in this area are a little different. The first thing that Brown's men need to do is they need to pick off the watchmen. Now, Brown had put one of his first orders as do not kill anybody or harm anybody unless they actively try to stop you. Don't we're not just going in there to loot and pillage. We are there to start a slave insurrection. That's our job. We need the weapons. We need a place to stay, basically. And they had actually contingency plans as ways to run away and run into the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, if they had to. But the first thing they need to do is get rid of all the watchmen, because this being a place with lots of weapons, there's watchmen. And also the basic time in the late 1850s, there was a lot of, like, uh, what you would think of as bounty hunters, fugitive slave hunters, and fear of the slaves. So there was more of a malicious status where people were always fearful and watchful at night. They crossed the first bridge, and the first bridge over the Potomac River is this covered bridge. So it's like there's a roof to the bridge. And they come upon the first uh, watchman, and they just say, you're now our prisoner. Think about what that guy had experienced. It's like midnight, He's holding a lantern, and 20 armed men show up. With bandoliers. With bandoliers. And just take them hostage. That's terrifying. Brown's men then kind of spread out throughout the town. Some of them go to the armory, which is along the Potomac Bank. And the armory's a really long selection of buildings. There's little factories in there. There's a machine shop. There's probably a gift shop. Whatever. There's a long stretch of buildings along the Potomac River. Um, and there's a big gate in Hortz's book, you can see a, a couple of good pictures of what it looks like. And it just kind of looks like a factory. And there's a big gate with an engine house that Brown is going to use as his uh, fortified like residence. And this is just a, a it's like a, a fire, fire station, like a really thick-walled fire station. That's if you're coming off this bridge, you just look to the right, you'll go right to the armory. Um, 
right in front of the men is what's called the arsenal, and that's where they actually, I think, were keeping all the rifles. So Brown sends a contingent of men there. At both the armory grounds and the arsenal, they have to pick off a couple of um, watchmen. In one case, they have to grab the guy through the gate and slam him into the gate to get him to give up and open the gate. Hmm. So they're not being gentle, but they don't harm these men otherwise. They're trying They're trying to avoid casualties. Yeah. And they throw them in the engine house. The engine house is important later, so I'm mentioning that now. And then another group of men, a small, small group of men, led by John uh, John Brown's second man, Kagi, they go way down the street. We're talking, in reality, like 400 yards. But that's way down the street in the small town. This whole town's only about 500 yards by 500 yards. It's really small. And they go to what's called the rifle works, which is where they actually make the rifles. And they take the rifle works. They take another guy hostage. As this is happening, there's townspeople returning from late errands and kind of crossing around. Suddenly they come upon men that are heavily armed and just say, you are now our prisoner. They always use that phrase. In every book I've read and everything about this, they always tell the person, you are our prisoner. And then they take them and imprison them. Well, one thing happens where a guy by the name of um, Higgins, he's late to his shift. He should have been there two hours ago as John Brown's men were first infiltrating the town and taking over, taking hostages and taking over all these spaces. Well, Higgins is late and he, he just walks through the town as if nothing's wrong. He gets up on the Potomac Bridge that they'd already crossed and Brown had put two sentinels at the Maryland side to guard the bridge and take anyone hostage. It's a railroad bridge, by the way, so it's, it's rather large. Well, Higgins sees these guys and they say, you are a prisoner. They try to grab him. Higgins punches him in the face. I, we're not quite sure which of Brown's men it was, but the guy drops him. Higgins runs full speed and then turns and jumps through a window out of the railroad bridge onto the ground and runs into the little hotel that's along where the two rivers meet. Man. That is the first instance of someone saying, I'm going to fight back. So he's going to be played by Tom Cruise in the biopic. It's exactly like a Tom Cruise situation. Yep. Now, this place that Higgins runs to, and Higgins mostly disappears from the story after this, is called the Wager House, which is a <laughs> really seedy hotel um, that's, like most buildings in Harper's Ferry, very tall. Because it floods so often where this is that it's like a three-and-a-half-story building. Like, this is really, really tall, and it overlooks... The armory overlooks the arsenal way higher than they are. And so Higgins runs in there and says, there's armed men outside. Bar the doors, grab your guns. And so there's a group of people from the very beginning in the wager house who know that something's happening. They're going to roll the dice in the wager house. (laughs) I'm going to cut that one. That was bad. (laughs) Brown's next thing he wants to do was a very specific plan that he had thought up with the help of Cook and... He wants to go to the local slave owners that live in the area, to their estates, and he wants to take the slave owner, uh, the slave owners hostage, and to arm and free their slaves. So Brown sends his second in command, Aaron Stevens. He sends John Cook because Cook knows the area, and then he decides to send three of his uh, black followers. So he sends, um, I believe, Shields Green, one of the other uh, followers, uh, Louis Leary. And then uh, Osborne Anderson goes as well. And since Anderson had come later kind of on his own accord, Anderson is probably the most educated of the, um, the black men there, Anderson gets a special role. And we get to see this from Anderson's perspective. And so this little group of five guys, again, with rifles, bandoliers, and pistols, 
grab a cart and just go off into the direction into Mar into Virginia, I mean. And the first place they show up is a it's called the Bel Air Estate. And it's George Washington's great grand nephew's estate. Wow. That's George Washington's closest living male heir. Wait, which George Washington? In the audio podcast, you can't see the disappointment in Kevin's eyes. Well, since George Washington was a very famous American, and his heir... Oh, that George Washington. And his heir is likely <laughs> to have inherited certain things and have a, you know, George Washington's heir is going to be an important figure to have as a hostage. Well, and... But also probably isn't going to win you any popularity points with the greater you know, region. John Cook had already visited Lewis Washington. That's George Washington's grandnephews great-grandnephew's name. And John Cook and Lewis Washington had hung out for an afternoon. They had shot guns, and Cook had let Washington win a shooting contest. And Washington had shown uh, Cook George Washington's famous sword given to him by Frederick the Great of Prussia. He had seen all of these fancy things, but Cook really didn't care. He was just doing reconnaissance, and he was generally pleasant. So when they get to Washington's estate... John Brown asks for the sword. John Brown's not there, but he says, we want the sword. And Osborne Anderson, we want you to take it. There's some purposeful There's some symbolism, symbolism there, yeah. Interesting. They show up, and the first thing that happens is a few of the, the women who live there start to look out the window. And they just simply walk up to the door, knock on the door, and say, we're, we're here to take all the men prisoner. They walk into Lewis Washington's room. This is five heavily armed men say, hi, you are our prisoner. Washington did not respond bravely, apparently, to this. He panicked. He begged for his life. He begged that if he just gave up his slaves, they, would they leave him here? They said, no. Right. They then proceeded to take his whiskey and not just, like, chug it, but pour a few glasses, and they offered him a glass of his own whiskey and said, calm down, we need you to leave. He refuses his whiskey, and he leaves with them. They basically just tie him up and stick him in their cart. Well, kind of unlucky for them... Most of the slaves were gone, that uh, they were off visiting their family. This is Sunday. Slaves used to be able to visit their families on Sundays. So there really wasn't many people for them to free, but uh, they did free a few slaves, gave them pikes, and said, guard your form former owner. They moved throughout the countryside, and they go from basically house to house, informing the enslaved population that they are being freed and they are being armed, and please join us and help us fight. Anderson says that people were falling over themselves with joy and just happiness at this. They were finally seeing, you know, their freedom. And it's an important part, obviously, in the book to him is these people were elated to see him and a bunch end up falling and joining up. And I'm just wondering as a question, can we possibly put ourselves into the shoes of these people, these slaves near Harper's Ferry in our modern time? You and I definitely cannot. Not only is that position something that I can't even begin to fathom, but like when you mentioned arming the the former slaves with pikes and saying, guard your, guard your former owner, the very first thought I had was you almost feel like you would want to do some musical chairs with who's guarding who because I can't even imagine what the relationship dynamic between freed slave and captive owner would be. Like, I don't know if I would be afraid to hand the owner over to his former slave because he'd be able to 
convince them that the rebellion will fail and to free him or else the punishment will be tenfold or that I'd be worried because I'd be concerned that the former slave would just kill the owner out of spite or run away or yeah, or just run or just take it and run. Like, I and I honestly, they took it and run. And I honestly can't imagine which of those three things it is. I couldn't even hedge a bet against, against one of them. I don't, I don't have any frame of reference for what a jarring thing that this is, especially because like you have to assume that most of these slaves, most of these now former slaves, at least in the moment, I'm assuming did not know that this was coming. No, Just got woken up at two in the morning or whatever, handed a weapon and said, you are now free. Join us in our fight. It's that it's, like, it's that quick. It's that abrupt. Yeah. Is, is, is this a test? Yeah. How how can you possibly approach that? And a, a, a number of them follow and a number of them don't. Probably a lot of fear. Yeah. Anderson mentions that only one man steadfastly refused to help them. Everyone else at least said they would help. And Only then, one guy, ironically, a free man who was black, refused to help them. And then Anderson goes off and complains relentlessly about the guy. Uh, but they go to another estate by a name, man named John Allstott, who's another very famous rich guy in the area. And immediately people start crying murder, so they have to bash the guy's door down with a heavy log, and they drag him outside. They enslave him, too. And then they try to have like a nice, pleasant conversation with him as they ride back to Harper's Ferry. Like in no way are they being rude to this guy, other than the fact they've taken him hostage. Right. They're they're in an interesting spot where they're not like like we, we talked about a little bit at the start, especially for a guy who famously killed people with broadswords and everything. Him and his crew are not here. They're not out for blood. They're here to accomplish a goal. And and they're they're clearly trying. I think I think the the thing that I find very interesting about this is the fact that it is a it is about a writing a moral injustice and about a quality of life improvement. And it's not just that in a very narrow mindset towards freeing slaves, but it's also like there's no need for unnecessary bloodshed in the process. There's no need to elevate suffering to lessen the suffering of others if you can avoid it. There's a weird morality to to uh, this this like what I'm sure becomes a very bloody raid from a guy who's been historically very bloody as well. Definitely, Brown I think was also trying to ingratiate himself to the population. He didn't want them to fight back. He wanted to spread an insurrection, and he needed a little bit of time. And he needed a defensible area, and so he chose Harper's Ferry, which we'll be talking about in a sec, is a horribly defensible area. You can't defend it at all. I mean. I think the fact that they've made it this far says a lot about that. So we shall see. Now, that evening and into the early hours of Monday morning, Brown is in a pretty good position. He's achieved all of his goals. He has men at both bridges. He has men in the raffle works. He has men in the arsenal. And he's got his uh, headquarters around the engine house. He now has about doubled the size of his force, maybe a little bit more, by adding these freed slaves who, again, he doesn't arm with guns, he arms with pikes. I've still never understood that. In the very, very early hours of the morning, a train comes by. A train rolls up to Harper's Ferry. That's not good for a variety of reasons. One, that attracts attention. Two, trains can carry news. The last thing John Brown wants is people to know that he's there, at least not yet. When the train shows up, 
the train depot is right next to the wager house. And Brown doesn't really have full control over that area yet. Or if he does, he's kind of allowing them to still do their thing at that time. What's, and what time is it right now? It's early morning. Like we're talking 1, 2 a.m. So the guy who jumped off the bridge, who Tom cruised off of, through a window and into a hotel. Oh, they that ba- midnight. They basically took the approach of grab your weapons, barricade the door. Mm-hmm. They're coming for us and we're going to be ready. Not necessarily we're going to charge into the village right away. Yeah, they didn't really know what was happening. They, their initial thought was it was robbers. The clerk at the, the wager house, um, a man by the name of William Throckmorton. Uh, uh, editor's note. We have a friend named Throckmorton, which is weird because it's not a common name. He's one of the first guys to run up and start taking a few shots with his pistol at the men on the bridge right after Classic Higgins does his thing. And they know something's going on. So when this uh, train shows up, they think it's robbers in the town. So they're not afraid of an insur- a slave insurrection. But the first thing they do is they warn the train conductor, don't go across the bridge. There's a bunch of armed men. Well, the train conductor says, I don't know about that. Can you just, like, give me an um, escort? So the train conductor says, can you get me an, give me an escort? So a few of the men from the wager house, including a... A railroad depot employee named Hayward Shepard walk up in front of the train as it moves about as slow as the train can go across the bridge. Uh, but halfway through, they are stopped by brown sentinels on the bridge. And the, the two men say, stop. We, we are not letting you through. They immediately retreat. The train does. The conductor says, get out, get out, run away. They have guns, run away. Yeah. Well, in the confusion, and remember, it's pitch black in the middle of the night. Hayward Shepard, who was a baggage handler, who had a close relationship with the mayor of the town. He was a free black man in the town. He presents himself to the Sentinels, or at least doesn't respond to their checks of a stop. And they uh, turn and shoot him because he didn't stop when they asked him to stop. As always in a situation like this, the exact details are murky. But it's pretty well established that he being the first guy shot, he was a big, broad man in the dark. It was so dark, they could not tell black, white, yellow, orange. They couldn't tell. Um, But he refused to respond to them. And the most ironic first casualty of this campaign exists. When he is shot, it's stomach wound. And his comrades drag him back to the wager house where a doctor by the name of John Starry is there. And Starry looks at him once and says, he's going to die. And then men really freak out and they go to a house just next to the wager house as well, which is even taller. And then everyone who's there, they actually start to position themselves up in high windows and are watching Brown's men below. They're not really have nothing's happening yet, but they're waiting for some assistance. You can see you can see the tone of the evening has changed. You can see the the unwinding of the plan. What John Starry does is he gets up and he basically goes and starts to walk around town. He sneaks around the town. He sneaks around and watches all of Brown's men. What Brown had been doing is moving his men constantly. He's moving them to make it seem like there's a lot more of them. Right. Starry starts to like shout at them and try to talk to them and try to figure out who they are. And they just, they refuse to talk to him, but he gets a pretty good idea that there's a lot of men and 
they're in every building that matters. They're not just trying to rob a place. And there's a lot of money in the armory and the arsenal, like huge safes worth of money. They're not just there to rob. They're there to do something else. So he manages to basically run through Brown's men, and he goes into the town to warn people. And then later he'll go into the next town to warn people. So already... It's spreading. News is spreading. The rest of the night is pretty low-key. When dawn breaks, everything is going really well. Osborne Anderson describes that the town was secure for the time being, quote, without the snap of a gun or any violence whatsoever. At least right before Hayward Shepard. Then the violence happened. By daybreak, as people try to show up to work, Brown has to capture all of them. As people start to fill into the armory, which is the main form of employment in the town, Brown is snagging them, grabbing them, grabbing them, and he has 40 hostages by early, early daybreak. They're, like, tying these people up and everything, right? They're basically tying them up. They're throwing them into... Because um, we're quickly getting to a point where there are more hostages than there are soldiers. The weirdest part here is what Brown then does with all these hostages. In multiple instances, Brown lets the hostages go back home with a guard to tell their family where they are and that they're okay, and then come back and be a hostage again. In one instance, a guy goes home, tells his family he's a hostage, returns, and then his family requests that he get to go home for breakfast. So Brown takes his, has his soldiers take the guy home, the guy eats breakfast with his family, and returns back to the armory. This is the weirdest, most polite, like, takeover I've ever heard of. He sends a note. Brown sends a note to the wager house, which is a large hotel, and asks for breakfast for his men and all of the hostages. <laughs> and he says that he will pay for all of them, and, he, and that Brown expects more men to be showing up. So expect to make breakfast for 200 people. That's double the number he actually has. But right. he's expecting slaves to come pouring in. Right. And even if it's... Even if he's not 100% confident in that arrival, the last thing you want to do is show your hand in terms of how many how many people you actually have. You don't want to call the wager house and be like, we need 17 Egg McMuffins, 23 uh, Grand Slams, and uh, oh, and John's a vegan, so, so just like something with kale in it for him. That's all we need. It's like, no, no, no. You want to be like, we need 250 meals and all of them are hearty because all of our men are big. I like the mixture of McDonald's and Denny's meals. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I was really having some trouble there, reaching for, for uh, like, ready to order breakfast foods. Yeah, I'm not a big breakfast guy. <laughs> there are a few other weird stories that happen all about this exact same time. Brown is all motion; he's all action. Anderson mentions he doesn't think that Brown knows what he's doing. He just thinks that Brown's doing lots of things to look active. The next thing that Brown does, this is the most confusing thing. Brown, after requesting for breakfast and then having the wager house bring out as much food as they could, and most people refuse it because they think they're going to be drugged and all sorts of different things like that. Mind you, the wager house does make the breakfast for the guys, and they all get to eat. Um, he actually sends a note and says the train can go. The train can leave. Because Brown felt, and he, he mentions this much, much later, Brown felt that he was terrorizing the people on the train. He had no reason to let them stay. He didn't feel it was morally upright. The conductor of the train says, no, you're just going to kill us all. Right. Or, do, or take us hostage. And Brown says, no, no, I will personally 
walk the train across the the bridge. And as they walk across, again, Brown's got a gun, or Brown's followers have a gun. Brown actually does not have a gun at this point. Brown actually had uh, Lewis Washington's sword I was gonna strapped say, to his body. There it is. That's one of those little details that just give you a good mental image of this tall, really stern-looking gun guy holding a sword, leading the train conductor and the train across the street. His... It is so fitting that this is part of our grandeur series because that is a very is it grandiose? What's the what's the word here? This this is this is a scene that really paints a very dramatic, important picture of a figure. You've got we're sitting here, we've got a book on John Brown sitting on the table between us right now. And uh, and you have a portrait of John Brown on the cover, and you picture that very stern face leading a train across a bridge with George Washington's sword. And you go, this is a man full of self-imposed importance. And making these bizarre, magnanimous decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I think, the word for it. He's magnanimous. He is, because he's so much above and he's important, he, he has this vision. He was a man with a vision. He doesn't want to in- inconvenience these people. Let them leave. Okay, so the train leaves. Once they get to the next town, the telegraph line works at the next town. Right. Immediately, everyone knows what's going on. But the worst part is Brown lets it slip, possibly on purpose, who he is, or at least what his basic motivation is. He lets loose that he's there to free the slaves and set off a slave insurrection. So when the conductor gets to the next town, it's a panicked message everybody get to harper's ferry because really scary things are about to happen now the reason they're so afraid of this is not just because a slave insurrection you know can flip that dynamic of free and slave on its head but up 30 years prior to this there was an incredibly bloody slave revolt in the south it's called nat turner's rebellion where um, a slave preacher basically gathered his followers and massacred 150 white people in the town, and then the white people, once they suppressed the revolt, went and massacred double that number. So there's this huge bloodbath 30 years previous, and that's what these people are afraid of. As soon as that message goes out, the town, the next town over, called Charlestown, every single able-bodied man starts to form up into their already established militias. At the same time that that is happening, there's a couple of times in this story where a bunch of things happen all at once. John Cook, the charming man who had lived in the area for a while. Played by Chris Pratt. I think that's exactly how you should think of John Cook. It is Chris Pratt, 1859 Virginia. This biopic has got a lot of stars in it. It does. I'm surprised there's not a true movie or like HBO series about this yet. So John Cook, he's part of a group of men who have been left on the other side of the Potomac River. Brown actually only took 16 with him. and He left five guys behind, one of them being Cook. Cook goes with him to the town, and then he returns back to the Maryland side. He leaves behind a couple of guys who really weren't, um, like, fighting status, at least physically. Um, his son, Owen, who had the hurt hand. One of the guys who had come later and was one of their best financiers, but he was this really s- small, frail man. He couldn't fight. And a few other guys in that same situation. So there's actually a couple of guys on the other side of the river who are there to have all the supplies and to be like reinforcements if necessary. Well, Cook goes back and joins them. And they start to move all of their weapons and supplies to a little schoolhouse in Maryland. But by the time that all happens, school's in session. 
So John Cook, a bunch of freed slaves, and a few of the other guys, all holding rifles and pistols, walk into the schoolhouse while the teacher is teaching the pupils. This is concerning. The kids panic. Shocking. But John Cook just acts like nothing's wrong. He requests that class is suspended and the kids are sent home. They need this building. But the teacher is going to have to be a hostage. Mm-hmm. After, of course, lets the teacher walk a very scared young boy home. Just more of these instances. Such a weird, such a strange series of events. Yeah. So Cook and another one of uh, Brown's followers, they all have names. If you read Horowitz's book, you, you'll see all of them. I'm not saying them just because we'll all get confused in names. I'm only picking out the important ones. But Cook and one of the other followers are there. And so far, nothing's gone wrong. And as they walk back with the schoolhouse, um, the school teacher, who also, by the way, is a wealthy farmer who owns slaves, one of the reasons they take him hostage, as they walk back with him, a thunderstorm breaks out, and they huddle underneath an umbrella with him. And they walk back. And a messenger on the bridge that meets them and says, how are things going? And they ask him, how are things going? And the guy on the bridge says, things are perfect. This, nothing could be going better. Half an hour later, there is constant gunfire from the town. We just mentioned three interesting, if bizarre, actions by Brown and his men. And you can tell that they have a very positive outlook right now. They're letting people go. They're taking different people hostages. They're trying to get food for their hostages. There has been a little bit of violence. But But, but it it, feels like a hiccup. It feels like a hiccup. They have a... In, they have a bizarre amount of confidence right now. There was one event that should have put a bit of a dent in that confidence that happened early in the morning that is a part of a bigger problem for Brown. Remember, John Starr, the doctor from the Wager House, he had warned the town what was happening, but also as people trickled into work, not all of them were made hostage. Some of them got away. Well, one man, he was a grocer, he has a his neighbor come up and as he's walking to work and say, hey, there's armed men who just tried to take me hostage and I escaped. Both of them immediately turn around and grab shotguns. And they go straight at the, to the armory grounds. It's fascinating to think that, like, depending on your perspective here, those two are the heroes of their story. From their perspective, criminals like bandits have, 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 have like, waylaid our town and we, precious few, must now arm up and defend our, defend our, 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 our families. Exactly. And look at like a man like John Starry. He did, from pretty much everybody's perspective, you, you cannot slight the man for being a doctor, being there and trying to help out the, the shot baggage carrier, Hayward Shepard. He went and warned everybody that there's a bunch of armed men in the town. That's what he's supposed to do. Yeah. We can completely disagree with maybe his views on race and support Brown. But at this point, they're totally reversed roles. Yeah, all these people who don't know John Brown and his team, and they they have they don't even know the framework for why this is happening. They just know armed men taking hostages, stealing guns. This is concerning. It's concerning before they know that it's a intended to be a slave insurrection. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like they have they the the slave economy is just it's it's not novel for them. It's it's a it's just a facet of normal life for them why would they assume that anyone was here to like cause an insurrection as far as they know they're just 
they're just unknown men stealing weapon stockpiles. That is wildly concerning no matter what the motivation is. Exactly. So these guys grab their shotguns. They approach Brown's men and they fire pretty much without provocation and they miss. Yeah. And Brown's men have rifles. The return shot does not miss. It drops the grocer. Pretty much dies instantly. He, he falls into a jewelry store right next to where he took his shot and he he dies within, I think, like 10 minutes. He leaves behind four children trying to defend his town. That happened pretty much around the same time as the train was being let go, as the hostages were getting their breakfast. You start to see the wheels fall off. Once that violence happens, every able-bodied man in the town grabs whatever gun they can find. Yet in the biggest irony of all time, for a town that is an arsenal, none of the townspeople have guns other than hunting guns like shotguns because all the guns are, are in, in the armory, the in the armory. arsenal. So they have things like pellet guns and little pistols. But someone thinks, oh yeah, remember that last flood? We hit a bunch of guns in a storeroom above the floodwaters. Let's go there. So the entire town runs and gets a backup arsenal of rifles. So the townspeople are about to be also bandoliered up to the teeth. And they know the town. And they know that the army and the arsenal are at the lowest point in the town. Home field advantage. They immediately start to run to all that different houses that overlook the armory. And they start to put themselves into different spots in the different windows so they have as many lookouts as possible. Men are now in the streets and there's fire back and forth. Not a lot yet still. There's, the townspeople are, they don't know how many people they're fighting against. But one place they do set themselves up is a place called the Galt House. The Galt House is next to the Wager House. And if you see it on a map, hopefully we can produce a map of this. There's again one in Horowitz's book. It'll it be looks, in the show notes. It looks right into the army ground and it looks right into the arsenal, which are right next to each other. And it can see into the river, uh, the bridge that crosses the river that we've been talking about. The only place it can't see is the rifle works, which is way down the road where Brown has a little group of men over there still. I think there's five men over there, a couple of slave, freed slaves and a few other soldiers. So most of his army is all next to this galt house. And one guy gets up into the upper floor of the galt house and just hangs out the window and just keeps firing shots. Just as people are coming and going. Yeah, and just starts doing some harassment fire. That starts pretty early, but... The train gets to the town, and they build up that militia, and they form up in an incredibly short amount of time, and they start flooding back. The train gets let go probably somewhere around like 8, 9 o'clock. Men from the next town are at Harper's Ferry at 11.30. The initial burst of violence where the grocers killed is probably three or four hours before that. The breakfast thing is right afterwards, and it's all happening all at the same time. When John Cook gets the good message on the Potomac River Bridge, it's practically no time when three squads of militia descend on Harper's Ferry. They are in the hundreds. Brown's men are 16, plus a similar number of freed slaves holding sticks. These militia split into these three squads, and the first squad crosses the river and actually goes around to the Maryland side and is trying to flank across the bridge. 
Yeah. Um, Cook actually sees them and shoots at them, and they shoot back. And from the perspective of these militiamen, they think that Brown has a massive force hidden in the mountains. So they're all—it's a misty, cool morning. Like they can't see anything, and they're just terrified, walking along these cliffs and walking across this river, looking for the fight to come. And then Cook fires a few shots, and they all get really scared. So when they come onto the the bridge at the Maryland side of the bridge, they're ready to fight a big, big mass of men. Instead, they find. And does that give them some clarity or? That gives them some confidence. So suddenly the two men on the bridge are attacked by like 30 to 50. Brown's men run full speed across the bridge back into town. At the same time, one of the squads starts to set themselves up alongside the townspeople in all of the major buildings. Somehow everyone keeps finding their way into the wager house. In the golf house. I don't know why that place was so accessible, but a bunch of people get in there too. And they start to just infiltrate the whole town. And they start to shoot. When the two men from Brown come sprinting back in, it's chaos for a rather short time. But it's one of those firefights where so much happens all at once that no source can really tell you what's going on. Everyone's moving from space to space, trying to figure out who's on my side, who's shooting from where. There's people are posted up in buildings, so you're just hearing gunshots, and you're not seeing necessarily where they're coming from. That's what Cook describes. He says it goes from quiet to just more gunfire than he thought was possible with the amount of people involved. Just everybody's shooting at each other. Now, most of the... Um, the one thing that the townspeople didn't have, they didn't actually have bullets... Again, in the tiny time they had to form up, they were melting down metal and forming their own makeshift bullets. And so that's what they're actually shooting with. So they aren't very accurate at the beginning, and Brown's men are. And Anderson describes how when the militia follows the two men through the bridge, uh, Brown's men have like a turkey shoot. They mow them down. They take out probably about half of them. According to Anderson, they were all killed and they're all falling dead. And there's this huge, just like massacre of these guys. And Rowley, I mean, probably five guys got shot or something like that. And all the other ones had to take cover or it's in between. This is the, this is the problem with, with like first person accounts is, is Anderson's biased. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and even if you're not consciously biased, you're like, well, you don't know what happened and you want to retell it in a way that feels honest to you. Yeah. So when those men cross over, they're kind of the first real big group that finds Brown's men. There's that big firefight. Brown's men actually win that one. But then once the buildings get captured, the streets no longer become safe for Brown's men. And almost all of them manage to find a way to retreat back to the armory grounds. Two men get caught in the arsenal, and they're hiding in the back of the room. One of those men is Osborne Anderson. That's how he gets separated. Remember, there's that other group of five men down in the raffle works, way down the street. A couple of freed slaves and um, John Kagey, the backup to Brown. And they're very, very isolated. And that's what the third squad of militia does, is they figure out that there's a small, small group of men in the raffle works. And after that first battle had taken place, they actually descend onto the raffle works there's like a hundred of them. And they surround it. They start to bash the door. And they start to cross the river to the other side. This is the Shenandoah River. And they start to fire into it from above through the high windows. 
the men in there realize they're doomed. In fact, before they had been attacked, one of them had been sent, Shields Green, had been sent to talk to John Brown and say, we need to retreat now. We're surrounded. We're not in a defensible area. Everybody's above us. We're down low. We need to get out of here. But this asks the question of, shouldn't they have already known that? Shouldn't they know that they would be surrounded like this? What kind of defensible area is this? This isn't defensible at all. And this is a weird quirk of Brown's personality. You uh, Tony Horowitz spends a little bit of time discussing this. From a very early age, Brown was obsessed with the concept that a group of men within a ravine was the best possible form of fortification. People down below in a steep ravine. Men down there could easily defend themselves, which is the exact opposite. Right, right, right. I, I saw I saw Star Wars Episode Three. What? Don't, why are you giving me that look? It's like the famous scene at the end of the forty-five minute lava fight. They land and oh, uh, and it's God. it's over. Anakin and I have the high ground, and he's down to the bottom of a ravine. Literally, it's just a lava ravine. I can't count Star Wars. They're all out of order. <laughs> That's fair. We're gonna have to lift all of that because <laughs> yes. it made no sense. Sorry, man. But obviously that's not the case. You want to be on the high ground. Yeah. And now Keggy, Stevens, Cook, all, they all of know them, this. They all knew this. Yeah. And they all had forced Brown into having escape plans, evacuation. So, so Brown thought that 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 the that hunkering down in a ravine was a good thing based on the ravine. I assumed that he must have had it in his head that because they're in the armory, they're where all the guns are. And I figured that's what he thought was like the real vantage point. But he also he just thinks that like the low ground is the right call. It's probably both. Yeah, but um, still the fact but that it's he definitely thinks, the low ground. That's his thing. That's crazy. It it obviously doesn't work. Yeah. He, they're surrounded. They're outnumbered like a hundred to one at this point. Ten to one. Something big numbers. Historian, not a mathematician. And it's it's an unfortunate situation for him, and especially these guys in the rifle works. They send um, they send a guy to try to get a message of evacuation. Let's get out of here. That's when they're attacked. Not the rifle works. That's when Brown's initially attacked, and the man gets caught in the attack. Now, before I tell about the rifle works, one thing that does happen in this first firefight is there's the death of Dangerfield Newby. So remember Dangerfield Newby was the man Godspeed, trying to... Dangerfield. They're trying to... He's trying to save his, his family. Well, as the men were moving back and forth across the, 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 the road system there, these are small roads, these are relatively small buildings, and there's fire coming from every direction. Newby is trying to go from the arsenal to the armory. And on the way, a bullet from a high angle hit, hits him. He's still going. He actually turns and fires back. And then another bone strikes him in the head and goes actually through his neck because mm. of the high angle of it. And he drops and he dies in the middle of the street. But there's so much fighting going on. He's now just a corpse in the middle of the street. Very dead. In fact, they can't get to his body. No one can. And during the course of the day, like pigs are rooting at his body. And later on... Because at this point, it's not safe to be on the streets for either side. For either side. Now, Osborne Anderson says that Shields Green shoots the guy who shot Dangerfield Newby, but I don't see that in any other source. But they probably did return fire, and, you know, there was a middle of a firefight. Well, not only does Newby die, later on, 
townspeople go to his body and just absolutely mutilate it in that just barbaric way. The bloodlust of combat and everything. It's after combat. Oh. Oh. This is like what happened during lynchings. These were souvenirs. They cut off his hands, his fingers, his ears. Jesus. They took parts of his clothing as a souvenir and as a, a testament of you don't do this. And because of that... These so, townspeople are becoming less sympathetic. They become a lot less sympathetic. You, you realize that as much as they would act normal and seem to be just as much a protagonist in the story, once that happens... You realize what John Brown's fighting for? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm firmly back on Team John Brown. I mean, for the record, I was never Team Slave Owners, but <laughs> not Slave Owners, but Team People Living in a Slave Owning Society. But, but yeah, hearing that, hearing the, the reality of kind of that, like we need to send a message kind of thing, is pretty, it's pretty haunting. It's pretty horrifying. So returning to the rifle works one of the three groups that Brown's men have been isolated into, with the vast majority being in the armory. And they're in the armory grounds. They are fighting back with the townspeople. Well, when the townspeople realize that the, the rifle works is so undefended, they're attacking from every direction. And Kegu is in charge. He takes his men. He tries to run out the back and swim across the river. Mind you, there's soldiers on the... Uh, militiamen on the other side of the river, but he's trying to get around them. At this point, the rivers are pretty low level, so there's a lot of rocks. You can more or less run across the river. you got to swim at some points, but you can climb up on rocks, and it's more complicated than it's just It's traversable. Swimming. Yeah. Well, they get into the water, and pretty much instantly, they're all shot. The one that gets the furthest is a man named John Copeland. He tries to hide in the middle of a bunch of rocks, and he's actually captured. One of the slaves is also captured. One of the slaves, in, trying to get out, just straight up drowns. And Kegi is riddled with bullets. The other um, insurgent is riddled with bullets, and they drown. But John Copeland, a black man, is captured. Immediately, the militiamen start to tie together ribbons into a noose for both the slave, the escaped slave, as well as John Copeland. And it really bothers me that I don't know the name of the escaped slave. I know the name of the slave that drowned. He was named Jim. But no one's even really mentioned the name of some of these slaves. Like, literally, if you look up the Wikipedia page, it says, a slave owned by Lewis Washington. That's how this guy goes down in history. That is upsetting. Now, I might be wrong that it might be... He might be the one that people talk about later, but a lot of these guys are completely unnamed because they weren't important enough to be named. Right. But... Guess who shows up on the scene to prevent the lynching of the slave and John Star and uh, John Copeland? John Starry, the doctor, who had come back into town to participate in the saving of the town. And he actually prevents John Copeland from being lynched on the spot. Wow. And that's, that's very frustrating, because John Starry has done everything right, and yet he's pretty clearly on the wrong side of history yep. right now. And that's yep. one of the podcasts, after all. The rifle work fails. The men are taken out and now brown is really isolated because he has lost basically half his territory and he has men in the armory that's it well as the fighting progresses they have to retreat into the engine house which is just one part of the army it's one building it's basically a big fire station it's 
really heavily fortified. And there's like 70 people in there now. Them with all a bunch of their hostages the and everything? The entirety of the hostages. I think at this point, they have let go a lot of the hostages, and they just have the really important ones, all the slave owners. Mm-hmm. There's still about, I think there's 10 men, um, important townspeople, uh, the head machinist, Lewis Washington, John Allstadt. They're all in there. Is the, mo- is the motivation there that same strange, magnanimous approach of like, these are not slave owners. They have no vested interest in in preventing what we are causing. If we let them go, they won't take up arms against us. That's my guess. Probably also practical. They, yeah, well, yeah. There's a better chance that he's going to get jumped by, by the hostages if there's if enough you're of them. That much. Yeah, yeah. Even if they're tied up, enough of them can just rush at you. Yeah. And he's in there with. He has a large group of freed slaves with him too, who so, are holding giant, you know, pikes. So he does have a decent amount of men, but. It's it's there's a balance going on. They're pikemen. One thing that happens at this point when it seems like Brown's losing is one of his men by the name of William Lehman, who was a young guy from Maine who had joined up with Brown a, a while ago, but still very young, born in absolute poverty. William Lehman thought that this experience would give him like fame and wealth. Like he thought maybe he could write a memoir about it or something. I don't know, but there's no real connection of why doing. Th- the slave insurrection raiding Harper's Ferry would gain him fame and wealth. Fame, definitely. He panics. He says, I'm done. And before Brown has completely lost hold of the entirety of the armory grounds, he drops his gun and he zigzags through the buildings and he tries to run away. Does this not go well for him? A couple of guys follow him, firing shots at him as he jumps and tries to swim into the river, the Potomac River. He's going north, obviously. And he gets up on some rocks, and they actually catch up to him. He's thrown off all of his gear to make him move faster. They catch him, and he throws up his hands and says, don't shoot, don't shoot, and they shoot him in the face. Not a lot of sympathy there. So, Dangerfield Nubia's dead. William Lehman is dead. All of the men from the rifle house, rifle works, they're all killed or captured. Brown is running out of men, and he's holed up in the... Brown's running out of men, and he's losing territory. He's in a well-defendable territory, but he's in easily sieged territory. Yeah. It doesn't matter how long you can defend, and you're eventually going to run out of food and water, and they're just going to hit you with a big bomb. Well, I guess they can't because of the hostages, but either way, they're going to find a way in. What Brown decides to do is send out a peace envoy. Brown decides to send a peace envoy. And the first guy he sends is uh, a man named William Thompson, one of the young fighters, one of his sons-in-laws. And they send him out with a a flag, a white flag, and the townspeople swarm him and capture him and pull him into the wager house. Instantly. They tie up and just beat him. So, it's, it's all that fear of another insurrection and resulting massacre. At this point, they still aren't 100% sure that's what's going on, but they know it's something along those lines that yeah. they're not... They're not happy about this anymore. At this point, no one is acting in the interest of de-escalation. Yeah, definitely not. But what Brown decides to do next is like doubling down on bad money. He sends a second peace envoy. He does not have this many guys. He only ha- he has a very small number of guys. Right. He's lost a quarter in the raffle works. He's, he has a quarter on the other side of the bridge. They're not even fighting. They're sitting in a, in a farmhouse right now. Yeah. They're actually moving supplies to the schoolhouse. Yeah, but he's, he's in a every man counts scenario. 
and he's sending a second peace envoy. Well, it's even worse than that. He sends Aaron Stevens, his best fighter. He also decides, though, intelligently to send Stevens with a hostage. So at least there is a human shield. They can't just shoot him as he exits their building. And then he feels it's necessary to send his son Watson as well. This is bad decision making. Now, when you walk out the armory, directly in front of the armory on Potomac Street, a very it's a wide street, but it's very short in length. The wager house and the galt house are directly in front. So they're so staring straight down at you. They're staring straight down at them. So as they walk, as Stevens, the hostage, and Watson walk to the wager house and galt house, one of the guys in the galt house goes, he's at the top, top, top store. He crashes open the window and basically hangs out the window and fires unimpeded at the men and he's he has a real rifle and he's a good shot and he hits watson um second he actually hits stevens first he doesn't just hit stevens he hits him stevens returns fire everybody starts to pour shots into stevens and stevens is hit six times and he's laying on the ground returning fire while he's being shot watson drops the hostage and runs back but has received a stomach wound He's standing, he first takes his gun back up and stands and tries to fight back. But it's pretty quick that he starts to bleed out. At this point, they fortified the engine house by drilling holes in the wall, like little you know, shooting areas. And you, they can open up the doors um, just a crack from the inside and like close them from the inside so that they can be defensible again. They'd open, shoot, 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 defendable. Mm-hmm. Well, every time they would open them up, they'd get shot at again. So... That's their situation. They grab Stevens and they bring him into the wager house. And believe it or not, he's going to survive. But he's been shot six times and they like swarm him. They taunt him. They like poke at him. It's not great. As the afternoon progresses, the militia is increasing in number. The next town and the next town start to send their men in. And again, these are drilled men they know what they're doing they actually don't really have much to do occasionally the door opens slightly in the engine house and everyone exchanges fire and then it goes back to calm the militia get drunk the people in the wager house get drunk and everybody is so drunk that they're just like rioting in this town surrounding john brown's sieged men the militia tries to attack with their drunken bravery they attack brown's haven't we seen this happen before in a previous episode yes and it didn't work then and it doesn't work now. it doesn't work now i knew it and their attack is somewhat half-hearted but they're hit a lot over a dozen men are shot multiple men are shot in the face um a couple of men are shot and killed during this haphazard drunken assault one of the men in the town in fact the most important man in the town the mayor sees an opportunity to avenge Hayward Shepard, the black baggage handler that had been shot. And he sees the reason to do this because Hayward Shepard just died. It'd been a few hours. Remember, he was shot in the evening, and he dies in excruciating pain in about 10 hours, maybe a little more. And Beckham, in an interesting look into the relationship between free black men and slave owners, had sponsored him? He was basically like his owner, but legally, Shepard was free. Interesting. And they actually had a really close relationship. Like, they were friends. So when Shepard dies, 
Fontaine Beckham, the mayor of Harper's Ferry, decides he needs to get revenge. And even though he was urged not to, he actually gets really close to the engine house, goes just across the street and tries to hide behind like a little utility uh, station. And uh, one of Brown's men shoots him and kills him. The mayor. Shoots and kills the mayor. Once again, we are not acting in de-escalation. No. When the mayor dies, the townspeople and militia, they can't do anything about Brown. They already pinned him in. They're shooting at him. But what they do have are two hostages of their own. They have Thompson and Stevens in the wager house. They go into Thompson's room and Stevens' room, believe they're side by side, and they go to kill them. And the proprietor of the wager house, his, I believe it's his sister, she actually throws herself in the way. Um, some source says she actually throws herself into the lap of Thompson and says, you will not kill him. Let the law do its thing. But they're drunk and they don't care. And they say, okay, fine. But we're going to take him out. We're going to you know, take him away from here. They take him out back and shoot him. Right, of course. They actually riddle him with bullets. They go to kill Stevens as well, but since Stevens was so badly wounded already, they just decide to let him die of his wounds instead. That is a worse death. It is a worse death. Stevens does not die of his wounds, ironically. He is just a strong guy. There's an instance, though, where people um, surround him and start to taunt him, and some of the writers that were actually there and on the south side were saying, like, if he had been an able-bodied man, you'd all run from him. He's he's got six bullets in him, so you're taunting him. Right, right, right. This is this is uh, YouTube commenters in real life. It's like we are in a position where we cannot, where you can't fight back, and it's the only scenario under which we would be doing this. Over the course of the next hour, two more men get hit on Brown's side. One of which is his son Oliver. If you remember, Oliver Brown was Martha Brown's husband, the one that was three months pregnant. Oliver Brown was shot in the stomach, and again, everyone seems to be shot in the stomach, except for Dangerfield Newby. Oliver Brown was shot in the stomach, and he bleeds out almost instantly. He hemorrhages and dies. And not to be overly depressing about this, but not only does Oliver Brown die at age 20 in this rather futile attempt to start a slave insurrection, but when Martha Brown gives birth to their daughter, Olive, Olive lives two days and Martha Brown dies of the pregnancy. There are very few happy endings here. This is the kind of story you get in this desperate of an attempt to solve a societal ill. And that's what John Brown's doing. That's what he's trying to do. But it doesn't really matter how positive and glorious your goals are. In the end, his sons are dying. And he's watching it happen. He's in the same room. He's standing next to them. For his ideals. And it's for his ideas. His ideals, his everything. This isn't the first time. Oliver Brown is his fourth son to die fighting with him. And two others were psychologically devastated by their experiences with their father to the point where they refused to participate in this one because they couldn't do it anymore. At this point, Brown only has four men left with him. And only one of those men is a Kansas veteran. Those three newcomers are actually pretty good shots, Shields Green being one of them. And he also has a group of slave men with pikes. And I just want to 
bring up a quote from Horowitz about those slaves in the engine room who are basically standing in a corner. They've been asked occasionally to do a few little tasks here and there, but they've more or less refused. They're helping Brown, but they're trying to find the balance between... They're hedging their bets. Yeah. So let's I'll just read a quote from Horowitz um, from his book Midnight Rising. Even more uncomfortable was the situation of the black Virginians in the engine house. Though ostensibly liberated, they now had, in effect, three sets of masters. First, Brown and his men, who had thrust pikes into their hands and put them at great peril inside the engine house. Second, the white hostages, sequestered with them, including their owners, who were, who were alert to any sign of cooperation or complicity with the insurgents. And third, the mob outside, which was unlikely to show mercy toward armed slaves caught in the presence of abolitionists. Then he summarizes, the men seemed badly scared. Badly scared is a, in an understated way of, of phrasing it. That's, that's between a rock, a hard place, and something else that is a rock and or a hard place. I can't even put myself into that mindset. Remember, there's no. bullets slamming into the walls. There's people screaming from outside at them. They were woken up at three in the morning, handed a stick and said, you are now free, help us. And here they are before lunch, presumably. And uh, it's mid-afternoon. They're less than 24 hours later. Oh, yeah. They are bunkered down with their former masters as captives, watching the men who freed them fall continuously. And the men, the men outside have no relationship with these guys. The owners, at the very least, can measure the cooperation and make a decision based on that. The men outside are out for blood. And they know it. They get to participate in the situation for a short amount of time. There's a lull after this where not much happens. There's just sporadic fire, and Brown's men are just stuck in the engine house. Um, Osborne Henderson just kind of mentions all of this because he's in a different building watching. No one knows he's there. So Anderson's watching all of this happen as this lull progresses. Uh, the peace envoys fail. Um, the town just progressively fills with more people. And from the very beginning, the actual authorities in you know, the main cities, I believe in Baltimore is the city they get to, um, the, the trains get to first, the telegraphs get to first, they begin to form a legitimate squad of military personnel specifically 90 Marines, to come and solve the problem. They literally call on the Marines. And it just so happens that by chance, Robert E. Lee, who is then, I believe, just a, a major, he's not a general yet, um, or I think he might be a colonel, he's a lower rank, he's, he's not even known at all, but Robert E. Lee, the famous Confederate general, he just happens to be nearby. He's not even wearing his military gear. Like, he's just there, but he's in charge, and so... He grabs 90 Marines, and he's told that there's this insurrection happening, and you need to go stop it. He brings in uh, Jeb Stuart, a famous cavalry um, commander. Uh, he fought under Lee during the whole war. And they gather up these Marines. They show up to the town uh, that evening, same evening. And they— We're getting close to 24 hours. Yeah. They try to see if maybe the militia would do the attack— the militia says no. They pretty much wait till the next morning. And Jeb Stewart walks up with a flag of truce and says to Brown, um, you need to surrender. 
Now, Brown had already been approached by the townspeople, and they'd said, all right, will you surrender? He said, well, if you give me a fighting escape. And they said, no. Of course, you surrounded 20 to 1. You're not right. getting a fighting escape. Um, Jeb Stuart kind of gives similar things, like surrender, and we won't kill you. Right. We won't attack you. We will just arrest you and prosecute you and all that stuff. Yes. But you would have a chance to be sent through the system rather right. than, you know, and, and maybe hung instead of bludgeoned to death by angry townspeople. Yeah. What actually ends the Rand and Harper's Ferry is described by Robert E. Lee in his official report when he says, the whole matter was over in a few minutes. Once they actually have enough soldiers and people there to attack, once Brown has refused to surrender, they actually surprise him. When Jeb Stewart walks up, the, the cavalry commander walks up and says, you need to surrender, and Brown refuses. Jeb Stewart turns around and just gives a thumbs up. They attack. They attack instantly. Completely catches Brown unawares. Now, there is evidence that Brown's men were trying to surrender throughout the course of the you know time where they had clearly had lost um, pretty much everybody but one of Brown's men, there's some evidence that they said, we want to surrender and turn ourselves in because we didn't think that it was going to turn into this. Right. But once they're actually pushed and the Marines attack, Brown's men do begin, all of them, begin to fire back. The first thing they try to do is bash those giant heavy doors that they've been using as defense, and they kind of open and close them. They try to bash them in with like a battering ram, and that doesn't work. And what actually ends up working is they take an, a big fireman's ladder and they smash that down. Once they crack into the building, the lieutenant who's actually leading the attack, now Robert E. Lee is not running in there in the attack, he's too high rank for that. They have a lieutenant named Israel Green who does. He runs in and he gets in first, and a bunch of Marines follow him. The hostages immediately start pointing and say, that's Brown, that's Brown. And Mind you, they only just learned that that's actually John Brown like 10 minutes ago when they asked him to surrender and it re he was revealed that he is John Brown. They didn't even know it was him. Yeah. They just knew it was someone probably similar. Well, Israel Green has a sword because he's in control. It's 19th century. And he goes to stab John Brown. Who also has a sword. Who also has a sword, yes. Israel Green's a much better fighter than John Brown is in this case. So there's, no, there's no like great swashbuckling moment. What's even weirder than that? He stabs Brown, but in his haste to get to Harper's Ferry, Lieutenant Green had grabbed a dress sword. It wasn't a real sword. It hit Brown, <laughs> and it must have caught a buckle or something as well. It just bends. It doesn't even stab him. It doesn't go in him at all. It just bends. Oh, this is going to really give Brown even more of a god complex. Well, then Green takes his sword and just starts to beat him over the head. He just gives him head wound after head wound, then starts to stab him. While the rest of the men who run in there, one of the Marines is shot in the face right at the door, the second guy in or so. And one of Brown's men is bayoneted into the wall. He is pinned into the wall by his bayonet, by the bayonet. Another man is shot in the face and killed. And the other two are captured. And it's over. John Brown has lost. So what's our basic death toll? Well, the official numbers are... Five townspeople, including the mayor, died in the fighting. The grocer, shepherd, two guys in that first firefight in Beckham. Two slaves, though that number is probably way smaller than it actually is. And about a dozen were wounded. According to Osborne Anderson, he, his number is like 50 for how many people were killed or wounded. 
And he actually has a good quote about the viewpoint of the northern side, the pro-abolitionist side, after the situation. Remember, Anderson is one of the only people still alive. Right. He's watching this happen. So what Anderson says is, and this is his quote from his book, the Virginians may well conceal their losses, and southern chivalry may hide its brazen head, for their boasted bravery was well tested that day, and in, now, and in no way to their advantage. It is remarkable that except that one foolhardy colored man was reported buried. Hayward Shepherd is who he's referring to. Right. No other funeral is mentioned, although the mayor and other citizens are known to have fallen. Had they reported the true number of dead, their grace did their disgrace would have been more apparent. So they wisely, he puts a question mark, concluded to be silent. I have not seen in any text different numbers from the ones provided by Horowitz provided from Wikipedia, whatever you see, you know? The only one who says something different is Anderson. In the end, I don't think it really matters. But this probably went a little worse for the, the Virginians than we think. What follows for Brown and his surviving men, the two men captured with Brown, as well as uh, John Copeland, who was captured leaving the rifle works, and Aaron Stevens, who was captured up in the wager house, just five men captured. They are put on trial, and they're given a long trial. Brown's given a, a month to live after he is sentenced to death. They are all sentenced to death, and they all do hang. What becomes more interesting is what does John Brown do with his last month of life? He does see it in the way you describe. He sees himself as a, as a martyr now, and he is very good at it. And that is actually out of the scope of this episode, but it is something I think we'll return to later, in a later episode. But I wanted to wrap up with survivors of John's, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry and just give a quick rundown of who's left. Because at this point, there's seven men still alive. Anderson and his companion, a man named Albert Hazlitt, they watched the Marines storm the building, and they scoot out the back, run along the railroad, and cross over the river and go up into the mountains. They actually have a rather crazy experience because there's militia swarming the countryside at this point, looking for the rest of the insurrection. They, the people in, in the area think there's more fighters. Right, despite the small number and the smaller number that got away yeah they're operating on the assumption that there's like dozens in the hills so Anderson and Maslett run into the rocks up in the hills and some of the uh, militiamen uh, are following them they managed uh, Anderson and Hazlitt managed to get to the schoolhouse where all the supplies were and they're very unhappy to find lots of guns and no food because they're starving. They haven't eaten in over a day. Right. So they run away from that room, and they they get back up to the hills, and they see militiamen down below, and they're still well-armed. They still have most uh, enough bullets to fire down on them. And Anderson gives another rather skeptical account of firing down at the militiamen and hitting five of them and watching them die where they lay. And maybe that happened and it's just been covered up, or he, since there's no one else. It does It does sound like this, uh, the Virginians have a vested interest in downplaying their losses which outside of just hubris i'm sure also feeds into a desire to not repeat the same panic of the the 30 years earlier rebellion yeah hide your losses prevent massive counter losses and all that stuff i think there's definitely an aspect of that 
and people were very suspicious of it at the time and not not in a way that I'm going to complain about but I think it's not important to our history now to really care about that because more death doesn't make this situation better right in my mind but what what end up ha- what ends up happening to Anderson and Hazlitt is they start to wander through the countryside and they're starving to death and they're eating unripened corn um, from the countryside we're talking like rock hard ears of corn avoiding capture and at a certain point pretty early on Hazlitt who is far less um, physically strong than Anderson is basically asks to be left behind he goes I can't make it any further I just can't do this anymore because it's also October in Virginia the weather can get cold and miserable pretty quick and uh, Hazlitt then descends into the nearby town they've only gone like 10 miles over the course of like three weeks and Hazlitt gets captured almost instantly and so Hazlitt Anderson's companion he's now the sixth man captured. And actually, Anderson benefits from the fact that he is uh, black because he has underground railroad connections. He knows, the, at least by acquaintance, some people. So Anderson gets to the next town, the next larger town called Chambersburg, and he walks up to a house of an acquaintance and says, please help me. I'm, I just, I'm a part of this. I just did this. And the person's like, get out. But he does harbor him for long enough to give him a big meal. And as they're talking... The U.S. Marshals show up and say, you know, open the door. Well, the U.S. Marshals were hoping that Anderson was so tired to be sleeping. Anderson had, first thing they actually did is they went up the hills and slept. And so Anderson was very intelligent by the way he got out of the situation. So with a full meal in his uh, stomach, he slips out the back and runs away. Nothing bad as far as I know to the person who harbored him, but... Anderson won't mention who that person is, obviously. Wisely. Because Anderson wrote his book in like 1860. And Anderson finds his way all the way back to Canada and survives. He later acts as a recruiter during the Civil War and dies of tuberculosis in 1871. Classic 1800 move. That is a classic 1800 <laughs> move, right? But he writes an account. He's the only surviving person to write an account. The last five guys involve John Brown's oldest son, Owen, John Cook, and three other men. And they all flee just like Anderson and Hazlitt do. Now, Anderson Hazlitt had come across a couple of escaped slaves who were slowly trying to figure out what to do, and most of those escaped slaves just run away from Anderson and Hazlitt, even though they tried to convince them to stay. Well, with the party of Cook, Brown, and the other guys, there are a couple that are freed slaves. Slowly, one by one, they leave. The freed slaves will vanish while everybody tries to take a nap in the rain, and they're left with just the five um, white men. And uh, they're starving to the point where they say someone needs to go into the next town to get us some food. So Cook volunteers because he is the basically the most charming. And he actually goes into a town and sits and chats with the family for like three hours and procures a pie, like tons of bacon, a chunk of beef. And just, it, it, they, they eat like kings. What a prat move. Exactly. <laughs> but then they're stuck going back into fields and robbing corn and living on that and you know, sitting in exposed areas being rained on. So Cook tries it again. Get away from my house. Do not drag me into this. He's captured by uh, fugitive slave catchers. And they send him right back to with the other men. Seven men are captured. The other four basically then just deal with it. And they manage to get over the border into Pennsylvania. And all four of them scatter into different directions and go into the north. A few of them go into Canada. Of those four guys, one of them dies within... Uh, a year in the Civil War, 
another one dies with uh, fighting at the very end of the Civil War. I believe he dies in combat, and another one dies in 1862. So b- before the Civil War is over, only two of the 21 men involved survive. Martha Brown dies within a year. Annie Brown lives until like 1930. And a really weird one is Owen Brown, John Brown's older son that participated. He moves to California and dies in Pasadena. What? In his 80s. Or in the 1880s. Wow. He died as a hermit living on the mountainside of Pasadena. I mean, those are the only people that live in Pasadena. (laughs) More people attended his funeral than were citizens of Pasadena when he died, because by the time he dies, his cause had become a celebrated cause. Californian liberals, man. There is so much you can talk about in this story beyond just the raid on Harper's Ferry itself. This is a narrative of an event, an event for a specific cause, and I, I, hopefully we were able to touch on enough of the motivations and the ideas to get a good picture of it. But what I want to end with is the last lines in Osborne Anderson's book, who had joined the expedition, the insurrection, as a free man on, a, free man on his own accord, This is what he had to say about the experience and its place in the world. Mind you, he's writing this at the very beginning of the Civil War. Even the noble old man's mistakes were productive of great good, the fact of which the future historian will record, without the embarrassment attending its present narration. John Brown did not only capture and hold Harper's Ferry for 20 hours, but he held the whole South. He captured President Buchanan, and his cabinet convulsed the whole country, killed the governor of Virginia, and dug the mine and laid the train which will eventually dissolve the union between freedom and slavery. Brown's failure was his success, because once this happens, once someone who's a true abolitionist goes through the action of attacking the South and that institution, the South realizes that they can no longer be a part of the United States. You'll hear that it was the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln which made the South secede, and that's true. But this fear that this could and would happen again, I would argue, is the rift that produced the Civil War. There's hundreds and thousands of events and little actions and decisions and percolations throughout history that produced this event. But if it wasn't for John Brown having this grand idea, and it processing in such a unique way and failing so badly and then with John Brown being a martyr and writing to everybody about how he felt about the world on his trial a very interesting story that I would love to get into without that you don't have the civil war and without that I think slavery would still have persisted or at least persisted for far longer so in failing in his idea and his hope to incite a slave insurrection. I think it's safe to say that John Brown was one of the leading figures. So in the end, he got his wish. Thank you so much for listening to the uh, final installment in our three-part series on grandeur. If you want to know more about what we talked about in this episode or any of the previous episodes, we list all of our sources in the show notes 
that you can click on. It'll take you to Amazon where you can buy any of the books that we use in our research. Um, if you want to talk about the show, we have a Facebook group where you can hop on and talk to us about the show, ask about the anything about it, really. Um, we'd love to see you. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, until next time.